everyone. Welcome to Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast. I am your host, Margo Catalona, and on this episode, we have the wonderful Eli Lynn here. Hello, Eli. Hello. Awesome. How are you today? I'm doing all right. It was a it was a wet day, so I mostly <laughs> stayed inside, which is a little a little uh, down energy. Usually, yes, <laughs> the pandemic has gotten me into running, so I was going to go oh. for a run, but then I went outside and it was raining on me, and I decided not to. <laughs> of course, yes, inside is very a little too familiar as of late. <laughs> awesome. Well, Eli, I'm really excited for this episode because you have a performance background, but. Um, you also have your fight and intimacy work. That's really interesting and really different. Um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Uh, sure. Um, so uh, I am uh, trans non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. I'm originally from Alabama, but I went to school in Virginia. I have a BFA in musical theater. Um, and so I think of myself as a, an actor and a performer foremost, but I also got really big into stage combat when I was in college uh, because I'm a huge nerd <laughs> and, and then went really, really far down that path because I'm also, I have a, a background in dance. So movement of all kinds have always been really interesting to me. Um, so I am now a, I'm an advanced actor combatant with five international organizations and I do a lot of uh, fight choreography work in Philly and and other areas, uh, wherever they'll pay me to do it. Um, <laughs> and as for the past mm, two years, three years, uh, I've been uh, a certified intimacy director with intimacy directors and coordinators. Mm -hmm. So, and I also am a, an overhired carpenter, an electrician, uh, and I also paint portraits, and I also... Uh, I'm a musician, so anything <laughs> anyone will pay me to do, uh, I will do. Yes, <laughs> that's great. It's a little bit of everything. I love it. Um, and you talked a little bit about um, how movement is your background. Um, what inspired you to get into theater? Was it dance originally? Um, and how did you get involved here in Philly? <laughs> this is this is a a great story. Or I great. Think very, this story is very indicative of a lot of things about me as a human being. So you're really giving me a glimpse into my psyche. Um, so I was very, very introverted uh, all through my teens. And my sister, who's a couple years younger than me, was very extroverted. Mm -hmm. And so she uh, was a singer. And then she got started to get into community theater. And I started doing backstage work at the community theater because it meant like I was still there but like I didn't have to talk to anybody and I got to wear all black which was all very attractive <laughs> to me yes um, then one day she was in a production of Annie she was one of the little orphans in Annie and I was doing props and I just looked out at all those little girls rolling around on the stage with mops and I thought to myself that doesn't look that hard I bet I can do that I bet I bet I can do that pretty well and so then I started auditioning for things um and I was uh, quite terrible at first. Um, I was very unaware of my body as most people in their early teens are. And then I started doing dance. Um, and so dance helped a lot. And then I started doing more community theater and more dance. And then I, um, and then I started singing more and taking voice lessons. And then when the time came to go to college, um, my mom said, well, the thing you should go to college for is, you know, what's the thing that you can do all day, every day and never get sick of? And I said, well, theater. And she said, well, then I guess it's that. Uh, wow. So <laughs> thank God that she wasn't like, are you sure? Yeah. Something else. She was like, no, no. What's the thing you love? Go to college for that. So nice. I, I 
went to college for musical theater. And immediately after college, my very first job was at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair mm-hmm. um, because I have a, a very diverse skill set, which is very useful for, for the Renaissance Fair. I yes. played the jester <laughs> my first year. And uh, the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair is um, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is if you're, on, if you're in Philly and you get on the turnpike and you start driving west, in about two hours, you will pass the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. So <laughs> I started coming into Philadelphia on Mondays, which was your our day off, to do more stage combat training with uh, fight master Ian Rose, who teaches at Temple and also does a lot of fight directing in the area. And he's amazing. Um, and so the chance to be so close to him and, and come work with him was very attractive. So then I got to know the stage. I had already been doing stage combat in college, but then after college, I kept up my training and I got to do it with Ian Rose. And then I got, I had a couple of like little jobs that were in the area. Um, I was at the Philadelphia International Festival of the Arts in oh, 2014 or something like that. And then I worked a little bit of overhire. And then, um, so I met my partner at the Ren Fair and she's also a performer. Um, nice. And we uh, started this pattern where we would have a contract together and we'd get to get to be together for many <laughs> months. And then we'd have a contract apart and we wouldn't see each other for a long time. And then we'd be together again and then we'd be apart again. Um, and so at a certain point we were like, we should just move somewhere and live there together so we can be with each other. <laughs> a condition for things. <laughs> right. And, uh, and we thought about New York, but it's very expensive. And uh, we thought about DC, but it was also sort of expensive and, I knew, so I, because of Ian, I knew the five people in Philly and I had worked at one theater. I'd worked at Delaware Theater Company as a carpenter. And I was like, well, I know that at least one place that will pay me sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and just as we were considering Philadelphia, a house opened up in West Philly that a friend of a friend of a friend was renting. And we were like, well, I guess, I guess Philly. So we sort of chose it, not entirely at random, but not with a lot <laughs> to go on. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was five years ago, I guess. Wow, nice. Oh, that's so interesting. How did you um, like pick up the carpentry and electrician stuff? Was that from like um, backstage days yeah. or what? <laughs> I mean, I I do like building things with my hands. I I like math. I like trigonometry, <laughs> and I like building things, and I and uh, I always have. Um, and in college, my uh what is it called? Work study. My, I almost called it overhire again. My work <laughs> study in college was in the scene shop for four years. Nice. Um, and so when I got out of college, where was the first place I did overhire? I'm trying to remember, but it was a situation where I didn't have any work and I was scrolling through, you know, one of those databases where they show all the theatrical related yeah. jobs in an area. And I was of course looking for acting things, but then some carpentry things came up and they were like, we just need grunts. And I was like, oh, I can I can screw things together. Yeah, I'll go that do works. That. And then I started doing more and then they started recommending me to other people. And then I was like, oh, this is actually a really great way um, to make money nice. when I'm not, it's very flexible. The hours are very flexible. It usually pays pretty well. It's very satisfying mm-hmm. to build a thing and then be like, look, yeah. I made that thing. Um, nice. Yeah. So that's, awesome. that's how I got it started doing that. Nice. Oh my God. That's so fun. Now I'm just thinking about like my work study and I do social media. I'm like, wow, I wish I, had a scene shop. <laughs> oh, social media is so useful, though, especially yeah. in, in the times to come. I feel like when social media first started as a thing, everyone's yes. like, well, this is very niche. Aha, the kids and their social media. But mm-hmm. like, especially now, 
it's legit. I was just listening to someone talking about the economics of um, the fashion industry and how Instagram and the fashion industry is becoming such a thing. So if you know how to social media, you're killing it. it. It is so intense nowadays as it has grown. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I also love how the beginning of your story of how you got into theater is so based in like, Oh, it was vindictiveness. <laughs> yeah, and completely. That I do. I look at someone else and I'm like, that didn't look hard. I could probably learn it. And sometimes I, I can, and sometimes I can't. <laughs> but I always that's think okay. I can. <laughs> yeah, and as long as you try too. Oh my god, that's great. Um, and what is it like? Because you talked a little bit about like whoever can pay you and uh, working as overhire. Um, what is it like working as an independent artist? Like, kind of doing that overhire work and maybe not knowing where that next paycheck is going to come from. Um, what is it like working that way in Philly, um, either pre-pandemic or even now during the pandemic? <laughs> well, um, to be honest, I've never done anything else. I'm very fortunate that I have always managed to find a way to hustle. So I've never really had a uh, a job in the non-arts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've always, always pieced together things. Um, Pre-COVID times, um, when you first get into an industry in an area, it's it's trickier because you have to, you know, make relationships with theaters, which is why it was so useful that I came in and I already knew a theater because then I was on their list. Sure. Um, and I'm on the lists of several theaters for like, oh, Eli is a person that we call when we need carpenters or like Eli is a person if we need... <laughs> more electricians than usual or you know um and i'm very fortunate too that now i'm on theaters lists as a fight director or an intimacy director or an actor they're like oh we should call eli's on our list we know who that person is um so i like to think that i mean i have been very fortunate that i am on on lots of lists for lots of various things in philadelphia which is very um which is very humbling which i'm very grateful for because i also know that philadelphia can be very insular Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they tend to just use the people that are on their lists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's very tricky too. I have to be cautious, um, and a lot of artists and actors will talk about this. If you start working at a theater as a stage manager, for instance, you go on their stage manager list and not necessarily on their actor list. Mm, yeah, so it can be hard to jump lists, or if you know you you just can't get your foot in the door on one of their lists then then because they have their five people that they always call then you know sucks to be you it can be very hard in a small community like philadelphia that, yeah. that doesn't have a lot of turnover because people have people that they like and they like to call in um mm. and well yeah. on the one hand i certainly understand that and i sure like it when it benefits me especially in overhire because you mm. don't audition for overhire you know what i mean yeah. um, <laughs> it's very it can be very frustrating as an actor to feel to feel like you're constantly having to wedge your fingers and and into doorways and like smash your way through uh, Mm -hmm. just to get on people's lists. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Just thinking about it as different lists and like, yeah, it can be beneficial as a carpenter or electrician, but maybe not so much as that actor that you haven't worked with like a certain theater company before and they have no clue. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if they start to know you as a, a carpenter and they always see you there as a carpenter, and then you show up for auditions, and they're like, "Oh, the carpenter!" And you're like, "No, no, the yeah, actor more than more. does carpentry when they need money." <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am the actor first and foremost, but I also do other stuff. <laughs> right, and but I also need to eat. 
so (laughs) (laughs) yes that's also interesting too because I think a lot of um something I've talked about with other guests is like that just being a nature the nature of an artist like you do more than one thing like no one does just performance it seems like everyone has an additional thing if not like more than that um Mm -hmm. Interesting that you can still somehow be boxed into those lists, um, or just people's perception of you if they saw you like from one show. It's true, and it, it I feel, of course, I'm still learning um, mm-hmm. so much about the industry as a whole and the industry in Philadelphia. But a nice thing about Philadelphia is that they also have, we also have a lot of smaller theater companies that are much more collaborative that value people with varied skill sets. So um, I have a lot more luck with smaller theaters who, who don't pigeonhole their artists, you know, they have people who can do several things and they're like, Oh, amazing. As opposed to larger theaters who, who would prefer that you specialize or tend to tend to look at people yeah. as if they specialize. So. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Cause something we always talk about in my program is like, do you become a Jack of all trades or do you specialize? Um, so it's interesting to hear that, like, it really depends not even just on the city, like in Philadelphia, even within Philadelphia, it can depend on the company. Um, yeah. Wow. Just, just thinking about it. <laughs> and, I think it's beneficial to be a Jack. Yeah. Trade. I don't know because you never know. And <laughs> you even think you think about people who you think are extreme, like the pinnacle of successful, you know what I mean? Somebody who like uh, Oprah, you know what I mean? Oprah doesn't just do one thing. Oprah does lots of things. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or even somebody like, you know, these movie stars, they, they act for a while, but then they're like, oh, well, I kind of want to direct. Oh, well, maybe I kind of want to produce. Oh, maybe I want to uh, write something. You know what I mean? I feel like artists have a tendency <laughs> to want to do a lot of stuff. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what art. Um, it can be like all encompassing. Yeah. And kind of, this is kind of getting into later about like the young generation and like advice you might have for them. But um for someone that is just starting out, like, how do you even get on those lists? Like, is it really based on people you know? Is it kind of like, just go out there and audition and try your best and you might meet someone? Like, how does that work? Oh, it's it's different everywhere. I, I have gotten uh, jobs and auditions in the most random ways and I have gotten them the standard way from waiting six hours for an audition. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm non-equity which means mm-hmm. that I am one of those people that sit sadly in the hallway <laughs> for hours and hours and hours. Um, but wh- I mean, a good place to start is uh, places like theater. Philadelphia has a page where they list jobs. Um, when I was near DC, there was a site called Dragonet connects, which just lists jobs. I'm on backstage.com. So any of those list serves where people post auditions nice. is a very helpful place to start because they often also post um, if you're if you're wanting to do more overhire, or that is a skill you have that you'd like to supplement with, they also often posts or often post um, when they're looking for like a stage manager or or things like that. So that's mm-hmm. a good place to to look. And then you also get to know what all the theaters are and who you need to look at and what their pay scale is and uh, this <laughs> that and the other. But I mean, it feels like a cliche to say you just have to hustle, but you really just have to hustle. And I think another big thing. Um, there is a, uh, an actor and director, uh, who, and also my friend who I respect very much, Dan Hodge, who mm-hmm. said to me, uh, you should not 
try to make connections. Mm-hmm. You should try to make friends. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always also enter into things thinking like, I want these people at the end of the night or the end of whatever, whatever process we have, you know, the 30 seconds I have <laughs> to sing these 16 bars for them. I want them to think, oh, there's a very competent performer, but I also want them to think that's a person it would be fun to go have a beer with later. Like that yeah. person down to earth and easy to get along with and easy to work with. Um, and someone not, who's not going to be full of drama and someone who, who is going to remove stress from the equation. Yeah. Um, sure. so I feel like as if you cultivate that, then when you go into places, people will, will remember you and call you in for things because, you know, God knows I'm not the best carpenter in the world. I'm not the best anything in the world, but um, I do work hard and I am easy to get along with. And I do put a lot of my focus on making the environment that I'm in better and not on making myself look cooler. And I think that gets me into a lot of rooms, to be honest. Yeah, that's great. No, that's great to hear. And like great advice for listeners that might want to whether that's acting or overhire or anything else in this industry or beyond, like that's great to hear. Going into more about the work you do, um, specifically with like intimacy coordination and direction, it's a relatively new thing, right? Like it didn't really exist yeah. too long it's, ago, right? It's quite new. It's um, uh, only in the past, well, Actors' Equity still doesn't really have any specific relationship with it, but uh, SAG. Mm-hmm. Um, Screen Actors Guild does, um, and I think that happened a couple years ago. And it was prompted in great part. Um, my friend and teacher Alicia Rodas was uh, did intimacy coordination for a series called The Deuce on HBO, um, and it went so well that HBO sort of it feels like was at the front of the push to bring in intimacy coordinators for mm-hmm. all things that have intimacy in them. Yeah. Um, which was great because HBO is very well respected. And so yes. a lot of other companies have been following suit and it has also slowly made its way into theater. Um, so yeah, but only in the past. So I attended the first ever pedagogy workshop mm-hmm. um, with intimacy back when intimacy directors and coordinators before that organization existed, there was one called intimacy directors international. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the first um sort of organized group of professional intimacy directors. And I attended their first ever per- pedagogy workshop nice. three years ago. So that was not that long ago. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> three years ago. Wow. Yeah, and there like- have been people doing, you know, researching it and, and doing things akin to it. And of course there has been intimacy in place. So people have been handling it in various ways, but yeah. that was sort of the first time that it became codified and viewed as a discipline as an actual structured discipline that we need to teach people and that we need to have uh in our process was was very recent yeah yeah like i think when i was researching (laughs) just the background like i think broadway had its first intimacy director in 2019 like it is currently 2021 yeah (laughs) and i the first production I worked on that had an intimacy director was also 2019, but I've never worked with another production that had an intimacy director besides that one. What production? Um, um, it was She Calls Monsters at Drexel um, that Casey McMillan directed. <laughs> oh, who was your who was your ID? I'm trying to remember. Um, Colleen. Yes. Colleen Hughes. 
Yes. Colleen Hughes. She was also at the first uh, pedagogy thing with me. We were there together. And we didn't really know each other before that, even though we're both Philly people. And I was like, oh, oh you're a Philly person. And then we got really close. And so now we're the two we're the two in, um, in Philadelphia. <laughs> She's, fantastic. She's a fantastic uh, human and ID both. Yeah, she was great. And I think she only came in for maybe like, I don't know, three rehearsals in the time frame that we had to work with her. Um, but I learned so much as because I was the assistant stage manager on that show. And I learned so much just from hearing her speak <laughs> to the actor. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak a little bit to how um, and help listeners understand like how vital that intimacy coordination is to a production? Oh, absolutely. So uh, if you're an actor, you have almost certainly been in a production that involves intimacy. And uh, it is so when we think of, I'm trying to think of a good way to encapsulate this whole, this whole thought. Interesting direction is not the same as fight direction, but a lot of fight directors become intimacy directors because they are both forms of physical storytelling. Gotcha. And you, they are both heightened forms of physical storytelling, right? The intimacy yeah. in the scene is a very heightened part of the scene, whether that's just, you know, sexual tension or, you know, kissing or whether that's a scene of sexual assault or something else sexually explicit or, or, um, you know, simulated, simulated sex of any kind of, or nudity. Like it, it really runs the gamut, but all of those things are heightened, heightened emotional stories and heightened physical stories that we're telling in a space. And with violence, um, we have come to a place, not everywhere. We still often have to fight to be like, no, no, you should have a fight director. You shouldn't just hit each other. <laughs> but that's the idea. You know, it, it wasn't always like that in theater. Often and still sometimes people are like, well, just hit each other. Mm-hmm. The, you know, and the emotional equivalent of that are these, these intense scenes of intimacy where very often people say, well, just kiss each other. We'll just do it. Yeah. We'll just go. And they just, you know, let the actors, um, not let the actors, but but put the burden of that very intense and specific and important storytelling on the actors to just, you know, figure out, um, mm-hmm. which is emotionally dangerous, which is not going to give you the best product either. You know, it's it's not really a good plan on any front. Um especially for things with really intense storylines that can be very damaging to your actors. It can be very damaging to the other people working in the room. Um, And also if nobody is specifically choreographing it, that is a big part of intimacy directing is we, we choreograph these scenes of intimacy because they are movement. They are a movement sequence and so you choreograph them so that they're the same every night because we want to tell the same story every night we don't want to rely on the actors to have to dredge up these intense emotions um every night we want to tell the same story and also that gives us a framework to be able to talk about the work because Mm -hmm. it's also very awkward if you're in a scene and say and you have to kiss somebody else and the kiss changes somehow yeah. If you've never discussed it, it can be very awkward to say to your to your coworker, the other actor, like, oh, so let's talk about the specific mechanics of us kissing. Like, that's very yeah. awkward. <laughs> but if you have an intimacy director there, they can be like, okay, listen, th- let's talk about the story of this kiss. How long does it want to be? 
where are we on stage? What is the audience seeing? How, you know, where are our hands moving, et cetera, et cetera. The actors, it's important for the clarity of the storytelling, for the repeatability of the storytelling. And it actually puts us in a place where we can tell braver, stronger, more challenging stories because we have these, these guidelines and these boundaries and these discussions of consent very firmly in place ahead of time. Um, and to have a third party who is not the director involved mm-hmm. in that is very important in terms of the power structure um, of, of the room. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> I, I never considered that they were so closely intertwined, but like, well, that fight choreography and intimacy choreography, like that makes so much sense now that you're saying that. And very um, often, I think the reason that it, a lot of intimacy directors, not all intimacy directors are, are fight people, um, but a lot are. And a lot of the people who sort of spearheaded, especially IDC, are were fight people first. And it, it is because very often fight directors, if there's a scene of violence, which also involves some sort of intimacy, you know, some, some sort of sexual content, then the fight directors would just, they'd just be like, well, you deal with that. Because you're also doing the punching, so can you also just do the rest of the thing <laughs> around it? And fight directors yeah. were like, "I'm not, <laughs> I'm not equipped to do that." Mm-hmm. You know, that's wow. that is not that's not my job. That's yeah. you know, um, and so a lot of these fight directors uh, and choreographers realized that there was a need for a separate discipline, a discipline that is very similar. To, uh, I mean shares a lot of, you know, there, there can be a lot of overlap, but it is, it is in fact separate and it has a lot of skills that are very different. And I do both things. Um, and I have also worked with Colleen in a capacity where she was being the intimacy director and I was being the fight director. And even no. though I do both jobs in that capacity, I was looking for different things than she was looking for. And it was very useful to have both of us there because, because it's, they're, they're similar, but also very different. Yeah. And you can both bring that different lens to it. That's great. And still have that like in the back of your mind too. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah. Just like having those guidelines and language. Um, I like how you said emotional safety and in, in the storytelling, like I, some of the stuff that I loved learning about, like from Colleen during She Kills Monsters was like talking about comfort, like even from the very beginning of like, Hey, can we do this move? Like, do you have knee pain? Like, are you able to be on your knees for an extended period of time? Or like something like that was so interesting because I feel like directors very often like just say, okay, this is the blocking. And then as an actor, I have to be like, hey, I have a, a knee problem. Can we make an accommodation? And it kind right. of- And then you as the actor feel yeah. like the problem child and you don't, you know, especially if it's your first show and you're a young actor, you don't want to be the one that's like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and having somebody in there yeah. to advocate for you, having an advocate, um, yeah. and the director is also an advocate for the actors. This is a very big part of the job for exactly the reasons you just said. I love learning about this. It's so much fun, um, especially as someone with a stage management background. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Uh, and kind of, we kind of looked at this a little bit, but are there misconceptions of being an intimacy choreographer or being a fight director? Um, what are like the challenges of those misconceptions or is it still a very like new thing and that's kind of the challenge of it? Sure. Well, there are, there are 
the misconceptions for intimacy directing are manifold at this point because it's new and a lot of people don't know. Um, one of a big misconception is that if we choreograph the intimacy, it won't have the same kind of quote unquote chemistry that mm. if we choreograph it, it will somehow be dry and lifeless and it, and it removes it's, it's like we're building a cage around the actors, um, which is not true. What we are actually building is a jungle gym that's going to be very, very solid and in exactly the same place every night so that you can swing on it with a hundred percent of your emotional weight and know that none of the bars are suddenly going to disappear under your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, I under, as an actor, I do understand that idea that if someone came in and was like, we're going to kiss for exactly six seconds, <laughs> you, you could feel like, well, that's, you're limiting my ability to live in the moment as the actor. But also I have lines that I have to say, and those don't limit my ability. Yeah. Yeah. As an actor, <laughs> and I have blocking that I have to do. And that doesn't, so, you know, there's so, so I understand where that concern comes from, but in fact, it is my belief that once you start to work with a really skilled intimacy director, you see that it actually gives you more freedom, not less. So that's a big misconception. And it often comes from people who haven't worked with an intimacy director. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that they're, that they're, uh, you know, horribly negative people. It's just that as they haven't worked with that person yet, so they don't really know what to expect. Um, another big misconception is that intimacy directors are also uh, diversity and inclusion directors and that they're going to come in and fix your HR. Now everything is going to be safe and no one can ever sue you ever. And, you oh, know, God. The <laughs> of your, whole, your whole room will be fixed mm-hmm. when this intimacy director comes in. And um, that is not what intimacy directors are there to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, it may be that while watching an intimacy director work, you think, oh, goodness, these are, consent is very helpful. <laughs> we as a player <laughs> should pay more attention to consent. But an intimacy director is there is not there to be uh, HR. Um, mm-hmm. We are not there to to fix your company, and we are not there to just give you to absolve you of liability. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another misconception that's similar to the first one is that we are therapists, mm, um, yeah. which we are also not. Yes, we take a lot of we take a lot of classes in diversity. We have there's a lot of continuing training that you have to do that I am constantly doing, trying to learn more about things like trauma and mm. trauma informed practices and trauma informed pedagogy um, and uh, and diversity and you know all of these things which therapists also have to do. But we are not therapists. Yeah. We're choreographers. Yes. <laughs> And directors. Wow. And even though it can seem like they're very similar, and you know, if you've worked with a really great director, mm-hmm. you you may feel about them similar to the way you feel about a therapist. Like a lot of emotions are involved and you feel very close emotionally to the process. And yeah. that's great, but they're not the same thing. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think it's partially because it's so new, people mm-hmm. don't quite know where the lines are. So mm. so those are some big misconceptions about intimacy directing. Concept misconceptions about fight direction. Uh, a big misconception is uh, that you don't need one, and mm, yeah. I assure you, uh, you probably do. Even if it's quote just a slap, you should bring in a fight director, and you should bring in one who knows what they're doing. Don't mm. just bring your friend who slapped someone else in a show once. It's not, <laughs> not the same thing. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that's. You'd think we wouldn't still be fighting these fights, but. <laughs> yep, still relevant. Yep. 
still, still relevant. Fortunately. Um, people have worked with fight directors more, you know, so they know more what to expect from a fight director. Um, right. So I feel like there are fewer misconceptions. There are, I run into misconceptions because I am small um, and I was assigned female at birth. I run into the misconception that I won't know what I'm doing mm. or that I will only be good for certain kinds of violence and other kinds of more hard hitting violence. Or if we're using bigger weapons or something like that, then I won't be suitable because I'm small and don't mm. have external genitalia. Um, and that's not true. <laughs> there, I have my strengths and I have my weaknesses, certainly. Um, but all fight directors do. And you should look for someone who's going to be the best for your job and not discount somebody just because of the way they look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great segue into my next like build on that question of like, how does being a trans non-binary artist impact that? Um, whether that's like the additional misconceptions, um, like you said, of size or just in general as an artist too, like how does that impact the work? It, it's interesting because it can be a double-edged sword. Um, the I hesitate to call it an upside necessarily, but a, a consequence um, of me being a fab and small um, and visually non-threatening mm -hmm. is that when people are handling more sensitive material or material that is they're involving a lot of um, uh, femme people or people who are assigned female at birth, mm -hmm. is that sometimes they prefer to bring in a person who looks like me because mm. I will be less, they feel I will be less threatening mm. um, that I will be uh, that my energy will be better for the process. Um, and sometimes they're right, but there are also people who don't look like me. I have an excellent friend um, named Dan Granke and they are a large bearded human and they do intimacy directing and fight directing <clears throat> and they are exceptional but they are also very big and, and bearded and intimidating looking. So, so, you know, on the one hand, sometimes it gets me jobs. And on the other hand, it very often excludes me from jobs. Mm -hmm. And something I also encounter is sometimes even when it gets me jobs, people in the room, and I don't want to say it's always men because it's not always men, but it's usually men. Usually it's cis men. Um, <laughs> think they know better than me. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I I do bump into a lot more people who think I don't know what I'm talking about um, mm. because of the way I look, and because you know it could also be because I'm young. But I think that my my perceived gender has a lot to do with it. Yeah, frankly, and I have been very lucky that I haven't bumped into as much of it. In yeah. Philadelphia, especially, I've been very lucky to work with some really great theaters full of people who are not like that at all. Um, yeah. But I have also worked with theaters where people are absolutely like that. Yeah. Um, and I have worked with st students who are absolutely like that. I have had, oof, yeah. listen, the stories I can tell you, the things people have, have said God. to me um, because they think, they're like, well, I used to do karate. And I'm like, well, that's very interesting, but I'm very the teacher. Cool. So, oh my uh, God. So that's the thing I bump into a lot, and I'm and I probably would bump into it more in places that aren't Philly. But man, sure. I still run into it, and it is still oh, wow. or people will I'll teach them something, and then if I say I have a male assistant with me, um, I'll say something, and then all the people will turn to the male assistant and be like <laughs> for confirmation, wow. and I'm like, listen, 
<laughs> my sister's here, but I'm the person in charge here, and I'm the one I need you to listen to right now. Wow. So, wow, that's so interesting. Oh my god. Because I'm interesting as a trans non-binary person is that people sometimes don't quite know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to think that that hopefully I am able to help make more space for people uh, people who identify as women and femme people. You know yeah. what I mean? That I'm able to to smash out more space for people who are not male um, mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that I sort of confuse people because I do present very masculine. Um, and so maybe sometimes I get a little more credibility than I would if I went in and presented very feminine. But hopefully I can make more space for those people who do identify as feminine, who are also super capable and should be allowed into these spaces to do good work. Yeah, that's a great point. And how does that, does anything impact um, like the misconceptions and challenges that you're talking about? How does that differ from your intimacy direction or fight choreography versus like just as an artist? Like, is it easier to navigate that as a trans non-binary artist or is it like still it really the depends on the, It really depends on the the area of art, to be honest. As a fight director, I, I think I run into the most of it because um, there is an assumption of what a fight director looks like. If I sure. say you fight her, the person in your head is probably very masculine. Yeah, um, but, if, yeah. but if I say to you intimacy, that's not necessarily the case. Just the word, you know what I mean? So I run into less of it. And because intimacy is very new and I was very fortunate to be in this sort of first wave of people um, mm-hmm. that came out of IDC and the IDC has been very conscious and thoughtful about saying, no, we all sorts of people, you know, this is a space for all sorts of people. Um, and there are a bunch of trans um, intimacy directors who are making space right off the bat, which is great. Nice. Yeah. Um, as an actor, it is soups hard because as an actor, so much, and I mean, if you know this, if you've done acting, um, so much of it is, is contingent on what you look like. Yeah. Yeah. And not just what you look like, but also what you, what your energy is like and what you, what you, sell it's about your, you know it's about your brand it's about what you sell you're selling yourself yeah. um, and it is much much harder to get people especially older people especially more established mm-hmm. um, uh, directors and and institutions to expand their ideas of what certain characters look like and what certain yeah. types look like and that's not necessarily because they're terrible people but they just they've just spent more time thinking of something a certain way um, and it is a lot harder for them to to challenge those beliefs about what what people look like and what sells what um, yeah and so that is hard that is has been hard you know uh, I used to present much more feminine than I do now uh, gotcha. I, I you know Eli is not my birth name um, I went into acting with a different name and I still had short hair but it wasn't as short um, I looked like I looked like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music was like what my hair looked like. I didn't sing like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, unfortunately, but I looked like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Um, And I wore dresses to auditions and I did all of these things because I was nervous. Like, you know, if I look, if I don't look feminine enough, nobody's going to cast me. There's no role. There are no roles for people who are in the middle. And so now I have allowed myself to become myself more fully. Right, but I yeah. don't call, get called in for male roles, right? Sure. And, I, yeah. people, and people sometimes are nervous. They don't want to call me in for female roles because they're worried I'll be insulted, um, which mm-hmm. I won't. 
if, <laughs> but they don't want to call me in for male roles because, you know, in their head, when they see soldier, they don't see someone who looks like me. It's, it's tricky to be a trans person because as a trans person, you are, you are uncovering yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, as any person, as you grow, you uncover more of what you are, but especially as a trans person, especially because of our heteronormative society, um, you have to take, it is, it is stressful to take those things into account when you think, oh, should I be more myself or should I keep shoving myself in this box so that I can still get roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that added layer that mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have to think about and that now everybody has to think about. Yeah. But again, a good thing about Philadelphia is there are a lot of places that take risks and that cast people, um, you know, just based on, on the character. Like when I look at a role, I don't think, oh, is this a man or a woman? I think, oh, is this an interesting person? Mm, is yeah. this a person who I want to play? Um, the example I always give is I would love to be in Sunday in the Park with George and I would like to play George, but I would also like to play Dot. Um, mm, just yeah. <laughs> Because they're both very interesting <laughs> characters to me. Um, and I and I think in a lot of ways, I hope in a lot mm-hmm. of ways that the industry is moving more towards that. Um, but it is slow. Mm-hmm. It is slow. <laughs> yeah. That's a great another great segue into my other question about like how is Philly theater um not even just navigating this, but just as on the whole, what is Philly theater really good at? What can we improve on um, your thoughts on Philly theater as a whole? (laughs) Um, Again, I've only been here five years, which in some respects feels like forever, but also is not really that long. um, Truly. So, so there are a lot of things I don't know about the dynamics of Philadelphia theater. Um, There are definitely companies who do interesting, challenging things. Um, unfortunately, very often they're the companies that have not very much money, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it means also that they have more freedom yeah. to, to navigate. Um, I think, I think Philadelphia can do better at casting more diversely. Um, there is a tendency to put one person of color or one queer person in a show and be like, cool, check. None. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a problem everywhere, you know. Not not to say, not to demonize Philadelphia specifically, but it is certainly a thing you see. Um, I think we can do better at supporting some of our smaller companies, yeah, um, and calling attention to them and lifting them up. It is a thing that that occasionally we do very well, but it is also a thing that we could always do better. Um, yeah, I have seen some really amazing things from some very small companies that don't get the wider recognition Mm -hmm. uh, that they should yeah and i think it's a thing that theater philadelphia is as a organization is working really hard at changing and i think it's a thing that a lot of the industry is working on changing um which is great because because that's awesome we should be if philadelphia gets known as you know this city that makes really brave interesting powerful theater that busts out of this box Mm-hmm. Um, then that'll will just attract more people to us and to our art scene. Yeah. And I think that we should embrace all of the things that make Philly wonderful. That you know that we're gritty and that we're tenacious and that we do things in basements and in <laughs> church lofts and in weird found spaces and that we we have 
so many uh, um, artists of color and so many queer artists and so many, you know, we should embrace our intersectionality and our diversity is what makes us cool and awesome. And we shouldn't, I hope that when we come out of this pandemic, rather than sort of scrambling back to the tried and true, but super uninteresting model Mm -hmm. of theater, that we take more risks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I would love to see the support for smaller theater companies just grow and grow, um, especially in Philly. I'm sure it's, you know, probably somewhere elsewhere. I don't really know. But yeah. Philly really is that it's so affordable, so it's easier to be a small theater company. If you want yeah. to do something, Philadelphia is a really great place to make your own work. Yeah. Um, it's dope. And I hope we continue to support that um, and and really embrace that, especially after the pandemic when none of us have any money. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just wrapping up here, what um, keeping in mind that like the listeners are probably emerging arts leaders, young generation, maybe graduating like me. Um, what do you want those people to know about this industry? What advice do you have for um, those young people? What uh, my advice is: do the things that you are really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Don't. Of course, you know you have to make money. There is the balance. You there. You do have to find a way to support your art. But I spent a lot of time doing things because people told me that those were the things that I should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah. And I would say that was a lot of wasted time. I mean, on the one side, it, it taught me that I didn't want those things. But that was a lot of time that I wasted doing things because people were like, oh, well, you'll never make it if you do this. Oh, well, you should really think about doing this. You you know, make sure that you X, Y, Z. Um, yeah. You should really focus on blah, blah, blah. Going into this industry, I would say to you, while you are young and full of energy and can live on only ramen, like, <laughs> do those things that, that set you on fire. You know what I mean? Do those things that you can stay up until 3 a.m. in the morning doing because you love it so much. Fight for yeah. those Fight for those things. Don't feel like you have to be polite and cautious and only do the things that will fit in the industry because you are the industry. You, are going, you aren't the industry now, you, but you are going to make the industry. And if you conform to the industry as it is now in an attempt to get in it, it will never change. Mm. Um, so my advice is be freaking brave. Because I have worked with so many young artists who are absolutely amazing and have absolutely amazing ideas, um, and yeah, don't don't let the bastards get you down. Like, do what you think is awesome, and and I promise you, there are people out there who also think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they might not be there today, but they will be. Right, they may not be there right away. You yeah. may have to sort of search for them, and it will absolutely be a struggle, but it will be it will make better work. You will feel better about it. Uh, and other people who are, who want to do those things will find you. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's yeah. great. Well, just, I love that. <laughs> it's what I needed to hear today. I love it. Um, Eli, where can um, listeners reach out to you or hear more about you um, after they listen to this episode? Oh, well, um, <laughs> I never leave my house. So uh, <laughs> I have an Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is ever in Motley. It's not a specific artist Instagram, but I mean, you know, if you're an artist, your whole life is sort of you being an artist. So you can see all the stuff I'm doing on there. Um, I have an actor website at EliKLynn.com. It's kind of dead right now because I'm not doing a whole lot. Yeah, those are, I guess those are probably the two, the two main places you can keep up with what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, 
everything is going to be, as always, um, linked in the description of this episode and on the Instagram page at pullbackthecurtainpod. So if you want to check out more about Eli's work, all of their links will be there. Um, And I think that's everything. Eli, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, Thank you for the work you do in this community and for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and supporting Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast. If you would like to support the artists involved with this podcast, please donate to the GoFundMe linked in the description of this episode. Thank you to our top-level donors, Katrina Chavez, Stephanie Smith, Brandon Wiles, and Joe and Dorian Catalona. Our shout-out this week goes to donors Barbara Compton and Anonymous. Much love and thank you for supporting as always.